Good morning. I'm reading from Numbers 21, verse 9, uh, 429, sorry. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And everyone is bitten, when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Paul? Well, good morning, folks, and welcome to church. We live in rather strange times, don't we, of uh, pandemics and floods and volcanoes and tsunamis. But be assured that the word of God is not shackled, and nor is the ministry of God through the Holy Spirit. So it's great to come together again and to hear God's word proclaimed. The last couple of times I've been here, I've brought a message from the book of Numbers, and so I'm, I'm continuing that theme. And I've called this, uh, Watch Out When Good Snakes Turn Bad. So let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we know there are jewels to be mined in here, Father. And as we look into your word today, do speak to us, Lord. May your Holy Spirit minister change in us, in our hearts, bringing light to those who don't yet understand Christ, bringing encouragement and insight into those who are following you, Lord God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I live in Wombai, and uh, Wombai is a very livable little town. Except if you, were, if you were taking notice of its name, you might not think so, because Wombai is, uh, is an Aborigine name, and it means place of the black snake. Now, I haven't seen many black snakes there in the past, <clears throat> pardon me, 40 or so years, but Wombai has lots of snakes. At our place there wouldn't be a, a week go by, hey when, that we don't have an, a snake encounter of some kind. A couple of weeks ago I'm, I'm, I'm in bed and there's a banging on the roof and I thought that, that's strange. So I got up onto the roof and there's a large snake trying to get in under the iron. And then a couple of weeks later there was a blockage in my spouting and the, the water's flowing over so I go up to check and to get rid of the leaves that are clogged up there but it's not leaves. It's a three-metre snake curled up in the, in the spouting. Then there's the one who lives down in my yard, sort of gets into the disused uh, chicken's nest. We have lots of snakes in Mumbai, but they are the harmless kind. These are, these are carpet pythons. They have a non-venomous bite. They, they kill by crushing, which would be like dying in a hug, which is probably quite nice, really. They... 
But the great part about them is they, their diet is rats and mice. And so we welcome them to our yards. They come out of our back balcony and try to get in the back door occasionally. Wombai people love their snakes because they are such good, good snakes. However, now and again there erupts a little kind of a story that circulates around Wombai. It's what we call a, an urban myth. It is totally not true, but it goes like this. Somebody will mosey up to you at the coffee shop and say, Bob, did you know that those harmless carpet snakes are crossbreeding with the deadly poisonous eastern brown snake? Not true, but that's what they say. And did you know that the progeny, the babies, while they look like harmless carpet snakes, in fact they have the bite of the deadly poisonous eastern brown snake? Now, it's, it's just a myth. It's a folk story. But it does show what could happen if good snakes were to turn bad. Today's account in Numbers is about a good snake, a very good snake that turns bad. A good snake that goes over to the dark side. Now, this snake's metaphoric progeny are alive and well in the church today, and they are very dangerous. So beware of good snakes that turn bad. Well, our first point is a good snake to the rescue. The context here is about 1500 BC. In this part of Numbers, Numbers 21, God has freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Israel has traveled up to Mount Sinai where they received instructions from God how to live as God's people. They were God's people. God had bought them. He shows them how to live with various commandments. They have been right up to the border of the promised land, the beautiful land that was to be their land. But because they grumbled against God, uh, they refused to believe his guarantee to give them the land, God turned them back. And they were to spend 40 years just wandering about the wilderness until that generation had died off. But in the meantime, in that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God is providing them with food and water the essentials of life but still the people complain they're now traveling near Mount Hor skirting around their cousins the Edomites to avoid conflict with them but again the people grumble against God they say why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness there is no bread there is no water and we detest this miserable food now, the miserable food is the manna that God's provide, that, that provided. They haven't got to work for it. It's on the ground every morning. It tastes like wafers and honey. That sounds pretty good to me, but they, they detest it. And so God's anger burns against their ingratitude. Uh, these grumblers neither believe in him nor his promise to give them their own land, nor, nor the, his promise to get them there. And they are not prepared to endure a little inconvenience along the way. So God sends venomous snakes among them, fiery serpents. And many people are bitten and die. We've got a bit of a picky there, I think, haven't we, Luke? That kind of thing is going on in the midst. Bad times, really bad times. And as the, the bodies pile up, the people acknowledge their sin and appeal to Moses for help. Verse 7. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. 
pray that the Lord will take the snakes away. And once again, Moses, in a, in a kind of a Christ-like manner, intercedes on behalf of the people. He prays to God to save them. And God replies, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So God doesn't take the danger away. He provides a way of rescue from the danger, a bit like his salvation today. So Moses fashions this bronze snake and raises it on a pole so it can be seen. Now, anyone who is bitten by a snake and who looks to the pole lives. He does not die. Now, it is not the bronze snake that saves them, but it's God who saves them. When people in faith do what God says, they will be saved by God. They'll be spared by, by God. God provides a way and they must take the way. Now, Israel is in, a, in this terrible predicament because they won't do what God says. That is, they won't trust his promise to, to see them safely through into the land of Canaan. But now he's asking them to trust him to save them from venomous snake bite. Now, we aren't told the details of what followed. But I am very sure, knowing the Israelites as we do, that not everyone who looks to the snake, who gets bitten by a snake, and uh, gets, sorry, not everyone who gets bitten by a snake will look to the snake and be healed. There'll be the, the rationalist, among, rationalist among them, and they'll say, and don't try this with your GPS, but that's how you know, bronze snakes can cure snake bite. The rationalists will say, how can looking at a bronze snake cure snake bite? So they turn away, not trusting in God's promises, and they die. The good news is that many pay heed to God's promises. They look to the snake and live. The snake is God's way of salvation in that particular crisis. Look to the snake if you're bitten and you'll live. And many do. Some don't. Well, point two, a good snake becomes very good. We're going to scroll forward one and a half thousand years to the time of Jesus where Jesus the son of God is explaining his mission to earth to a to a Pharisee an inquiring Pharisee called Nicodemus and he says to Nicodemus in John 3 verses 14 to 15 just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man that is Jesus must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So you see, the, the good snake becomes an even better snake by serving as an illustration of Jesus' saving ministry. Jesus, like the snake, must be lifted up. We're speaking here of the crucifixion, the cross. And everyone who looks to him, that is, everyone who believes in him, who receives him as Lord, will be immediately granted forgiveness of sins and eternal life. God sends Jesus as rescuer, as saviour, just like he sent the bronze snake as a rescuer, as a saviour back in Moses' day. And just as the people had to obey God by looking to the snake to be saved from snake bite, we have to obey God by looking to Jesus to be saved from the death of eternal separation from God. 
by looking to Jesus we receive not just life but eternal life so this bronze snake has done its job it has illustrated the ministry of Jesus it's a very good snake we are getting a lot of mileage out of this out of this snake now of course behind the lifting up of Jesus from the earth lies the whole doctrine of salvation Jesus the perfect man God's son offering his life as a substitute for ours and the father receiving his sacrificial death as sufficient to to atone for the sins of the world and efficient effective in atoning for the sins of all believers past present and future God sees us all he lives in eternity so in the lifting up of Jesus the crucifixion God's demand for justice is met someone must die to pay for sin we either pay for it ourselves or look to Jesus and he pays for it so in his grace all who look to Jesus and believe in him as Lord go free it's called justification by faith just like the rescuer the rescuer of the Israelites who looked to the bronze snake were were cured by faith so the bronze snake becomes one of many Old Testament illustrations that help the Israelites they help us understand that that Jesus death is much more than just an unfortunate miscarriage of justice it is the key moment in God's great salvation plan it's the key moment in Bible history it's the key moment in history by which we may go free from the penalty and the consequences of sin that dog us all well it'd be nice if the story ended there but it doesn't there's more point three a good snake turns bad what happened to the bronze snake after it served its purpose in the wilderness and the people of Israel moved on well we can't be absolutely sure but it's clear that someone decided to keep it they took it down from the pole and probably popped it in a bag and carried it around I suspect as a memorial to God's grace I mean we 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 carry similar things as memorials of God's grace don't we we put crosses on our church and we put them on our on our things and we tattoo them on our arms little things that remind us of God's God's grace to us and I suppose around the campfire at night the Israelites would pull out the bronze snake and someone would tell the story of how God used this thing to save people's lives and they would give praise to God for his mercy and give thanks to God for his mercy now the storyteller I hope would say that it wasn't the bronze snake that saved them but it was people's obedience to God's word commanded by God they looked to the bronze snake they were saved by faith in God's word all praise to God so for a time the snake we expect would have continued to do good it's a reminder of God's grace a bit like a bit like the Lord's Supper we for the past 2,000 years have celebrated the Lord's Supper to remind us of God's grace that we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God but that Jesus by his life and death did everything that we need to make us right with God so it's similar to that it's a reminder well scroll down from the time of Moses and the snake 
Scroll down 700 years to the days of King Hezekiah. Israel is now in the promised land, well and truly ensconced there, settled there. And a godly reforming king named Hezekiah comes to the throne of Judah. Now when he ascends the throne, he inherits a spiritual basket case. Judah, the land of Judah, is, a, is an absolute spiritual mess. They are the southern kingdom of Israel. They are the remnant of God's people, but they are stooped in idolatry and immorality. And they are the better half of Israel. The northern kingdom, based on Samaria, they are a double spiritual basket case. They are so deeply entrenched in evil and idolatry that God is about to destroy them by the coming of the Assyrians. A few more years and they're gone. But Hezekiah is a good and godly king. He decrees reform, not economic reform. Most people today think that uh, you can change the world by economic reform. It's nothing wrong with that, but we need much more than that. We need what Hezekiah talked about, and that was religious reform. And so he began a, a reformation of the land of Judah. In 2 Kings, verse, chapter 18, verse 4, we read in summary what he did. He removed the high places. Now the Israelites were supposed to worship at the temple. God had concentrated worship on the temple, but they still had their high places up on the hills where they go up there and they do all kinds of funny things in worship, which they weren't supposed to. So he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones. These are pagan, idolatrous things. Cut down the Asherah poles. They had borrowed all this idolatry from their pagan neighbors. Rather than them converting their neighbors, the pagan neighbors were converting them. And so King Hezekiah rid the land of idols. And we read in 2 Kings 18.4, he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. They even called it Nehushtan. They'd become an idol, this thing. Now, it staggers me. Somewhere along the way, over those 700 years, I suppose by small increments, the bronze snake had gone from, gone from being a reminder of God's grace to being an idol that people had worshipped. The Israelites were worshipping the snake rather than worshipping the God who through the snake had brought about a great salvation. The snake had gone over to the dark side or rather it had been moved over to the dark side by the people. Now, following their pagan neighbours they even gave the thing a name, good old Nehushtan, the snake god. It's a Hebrew word for bronze snake. So rather than leading people to God, it was leading people away from him. And Hezekiah had it destroyed. When good snakes turn bad, not talking about the things in the bush, uh, you must destroy them or they will ruin God's people. Now, in the church, and, and Israel, of course, is the Old Testament church, when something comes between the people and God, it has to go. As Jesus said to Satan when he was attacked by him with temptation after temptation, worship the Lord your God and him only. So Hezekiah did the right thing. And Judah enjoyed a tremendous uh, spiritual revival. 
which actually delayed their destruction for about 150 more years. Well, the good snake had turned bad and became part of the decline of spiritual life in the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, point four, four, we should draw a few lessons from the bad snake. Where do we find, metaphorically speaking, bad snakes today? They're in the church, where they were back in, back in those days. See, like, like the bronze serpent, a bad snake, metaphorically, is anything that assumes a significance above what it deserves, anything that's given higher priority than Christ and his word. It's something that has been good, but about which we have come to lose perspective. It's a thing which is relatively insignificant, but, but given such importance that it detracts from the, the things of first importance. And the things of first importance are the true worship of God. It takes people from the light side to the dark side. It becomes a thing over which people fight and break fellowship, over which churches split, and over which the Holy Spirit grieves. So in the church, we have to be really careful to maintain perspective. We worship God through worshipping Jesus Christ. Jesus is the main thing, and we must keep the main thing the main thing. Now, in church, as we are today, in the church meetings, we essentially do four things. Now, I'm very, very firm on this. There are four critical elements, and they come to us via Acts 2.42, where we're told what the early church did. This is what they did in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now the apostles are the, the ones who, who preached the Old Testament and they wrote the New Testament. So they are the, the Bible is the apostles' teaching. We devote ourselves to the Bible, to the teaching of God's word from the scriptures. Point one. They devoted themselves to the fellowship that is, the word means encouraging. Fellowship, encouragement, same word. Encouraging one another. Now, we encourage each other by speaking words of encouragement to those around about us. I've had people say to me um, many years ago, no one should ever talk in church because um, silence is the purest form of worship. That's not in the Bible, by the way. Uh, how can you... How can you encourage somebody if you're sitting there in, in stony silence? You, you talk to encourage before church, after church, over morning tea. It's, it's what we do. We don't talk during the sermon. We just talk before and after. And we, and we encourage both by our words and by our deeds. There are people out here checking us in, people serving morning tea, people who clean these, these, these chairs. This is all part of our fellowship, encouragement. We see people doing things to serve others and we serve others by our words. So that's the fellowship part. And then the breaking of bread, Lord's Supper, and prayer. So four elements, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, there are many ways we can do those essentials, but they are the essentials. Now, I haven't even mentioned music in that list, have I? Uh, it would be, I think, the most contentious thing in church these days. Yet, the church has always sung and... and, and uh, we, we, we have to sing. But in singing, we can teach God's word. We've sung beautiful words today which teach the gospel to us and we, we can teach God's word through singing. We can pray in song. A lot of our songs are prayers. 
and we can encourage each other in song. Onward, Christian soldiers, you know, that's, that's speaking that way to one another. So in church music, the crucial factor is the content of our songs. What are they communicating? Are they communicating truth? Are they encouraging others? Are they good? It has nothing to do with the instruments that, that accompany our music, not the tune itself, uh, not which hymn book you do or don't use. They're not important. It's the content of the words. Now, I, I've been in, in ministry 30 years, and I've seen things. Churches have split. Uh, we've seen ministries destroyed. We've seen pastors destroyed. People leaving churches because they insist on using only a certain instrument as though God himself has sort of appointed that instrument as the instrument of song. Or only a certain hymn book. Those things be- become a bad snake. People are judged then not on whether they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but do you favour that instrument? Or do you, do you have only that hymn book? And those kind of things. Now... That instrument may have been very good in its time, a good snake, blessed by God. That, that hymn book may have been a great hymn book in its time and blessed by God, but insisting on using only that instrument or that book becomes a bad snake. It's virtually worshipping the thing and not the God about whom we are here. It's the content of songs that matters. It's the content that God cares about. And of course, Scripture, go to Psalm 150, sanctions the full range of instruments. God, God's given us music. It's good to use music to encourage people to sing. But music will change over time from culture to culture. It's the gospel that must not change, but music will change. We go up into Chin State, way up in the hills of Myanmar, and they are singing beautiful Christian words and beautiful Christian songs in Chin State, Myanmar-type music, and we love it. We go to Malawi in Africa, and um, they're singing African songs, Christian songs, bopping along a bit, but they sing great words, great songs in their own kind of music. Come here to Chinese church this afternoon. You'll find them singing Chinese-type Christian songs, and it's all very good and very wonderful. It's the words that count. I'm just giving a few examples here of things that can go wrong in churches. And sometimes we become stuck on, on doing things a certain way and any kind of a departure from doing them may be seen as a heresy. People will say, you must have the Lord's Supper before the sermon or you must have the Lord's Supper after the sermon. I don't care where you have the Lord's Supper. Quite frankly, it can, it can go anywhere. But we can become so stuck on doing things a certain way that the way we do things becomes more important than the thing itself. That's when it becomes a bad snake. One of my big heroes from history is Augustine of Hippo, Bishop of Hippo back in the 5th century. And uh, he wrote this. There is nothing worse than an angry layman when you change the structure of the service. Move the prayer from there to there and boy, you've got to fight on your hands. So Augustine discovered that. The order of service is not important. What is important is that it contains all the elements of church Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Moreover, touchy one, but sometimes Bible versions can become a bad snake issue, an issue over which churches split and people leave. Some people insist that their favorite version is the only version, like it fell out of heaven. There's nothing wrong with having 
a preferred version. We all have them. But the only guaranteed perfect Bible text is the original Hebrew written by the prophets and the original Greek written by, by the apostles. And we, we haven't got those as far as we know, though we are very, very close to them. But how many of us here speak Greek and Hebrew anyway? Every Bible today is a translation produced by language scholars, most, most of which are very good, very faithful, and we must not lose perspective by saying that a certain version is the only acceptable version. Have your preferred version by all means. It really is comforting to me, having studied this at great depth in college and since, that, that apart from versions produced by the various cults, the Bible scholars who produce today's versions do their best, knowing that their work is going to be reviewed by many of their peers, thousands of their peers and by millions of Bible-believing Christians. No orthodox Bible translation translator is trying to hoodwink us. They are trying to communicate God's word to today's generation in a way that's understood. There was nothing wrong with keeping that bronze snake. There is nothing wrong with having a certain instrument or a certain songbook or a certain translation, but do not lose perspective. Don't allow good snakes to become bad snakes, where we judge people by their adherence to lesser things. The Apostle Paul says this, and it's very, very important. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and the twelve. That is the core gospel, the core of the Bible. They are the things of first importance leading us to what Paul calls in Galatians 5, 6, faith in Jesus expressing itself as love. There's the whole story, faith in Jesus expressing itself as love for others bad snakes metaphoric bad snakes shift the focus away from those things the things of first importance onto lesser things turning good things into idol so we must keep our minds alert i must not allow my preferences to be more important than scripture itself we must keep our focus on the bible's teaching the fellowship the breaking of bread and prayer and also showing patience and perseverance and tolerance towards those who differ from us on lesser things beware of good snakes that can turn bad and cause disruptions in church keep our mind focused upon the main thing the main thing is jesus please pray father in heaven thank you for your word again we we follow the trail lord of this thing, this snake, Lord God, things that, good things you did through it, Lord God, and what people then turned it into. Deliver us, I pray, Father, from the sin of turning good things into, into idols, Lord God, the things that, they are, that become more important to us than the Scripture itself, than faith in Jesus itself, than your church, than your people. So have mercy upon us, we pray, Father. May we be mindful, discerning, Father, um, people of, of great wisdom and insight, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Bob. Well, let us stand and sing.